Growing up in Boise, I heard numerous legends about a sort of tunnel system that existed underneath the downtown portion of the city, one that had been built supposedly in secret by Chinese business owners early on in the city's construction. While secret tunnel systems certainly do exist under towns and cities all over the world, and intricate underground passageways were not necessarily an uncommon thing for the time, based on not only my very brief research into this topic and the much more focused investigation done by Idaho historians and journalists that I'm going to reference in this episode, unfortunately, for the adamant believer of the tunnel story, it is much more myth than actual fact. Interestingly, though, what does exist underneath some of the few buildings that remain from that time are canals. They would not have been big enough for a person to fit through, so the tunnel legend is still out. But what they were used for was washing laundry. Ditches were dug in the basements of buildings filled with slop water and soap and then covered with planks. Understandably, this would have been a much more efficient and less time-consuming method of transporting water between laundry facilities, of which there were many in the downtown area. At the time, plumbing was still slowly being integrated into the infrastructure of the American West. So there may not have been a tunnel system, but I think this proves that the literal underground history of downtown Boise is no less fascinating, and it also gives us an idea of where that legend probably originated from. My name is Sarah Jarazek, and you're listening to Around the Bend, a fair housing podcast. Today we pick up with part two of Erasing History, Chinese Immigration in Idaho. This is episode four of a six-part mini-series where each episode I focus on a particular aspect of fair housing history in the United States and in Idaho. At the Intermountain Fair Housing Council, we believe that housing justice is literally around the bend. Dr. Martin Luther King Jr. once said, The arc of the moral universe is long, but it bends towards justice. It is the mission of IFHC to ensure open and inclusive housing for all persons and, in doing this, build beloved community. We left off in the last episode with the Hell's Canyon Massacre, in which 34 Chinese men were murdered, and the growing wave of racism against Chinese people in particular, which was in no small part bolstered by decisions being made by Congress and the U.S. government. California was the first state government to pass measures aimed at restricting the rights of Chinese residents. Restrictions ranged from requiring special licenses for Chinese businesses or workers that would prevent them from ever being granted citizenship. However, this legislation was directly in violation of something called the 1868 Burlingham Seward Treaty, which was a treaty with China. So these regulations, while technically unenforceable and negated on an official level by the federal government, just served to fuel the fire of anti-Asian racism that was engulfing the western half of the country especially. An insanely abridged version of the Burlingham Seward Treaty is that in 1868, in an effort to strengthen our relationship with China, the U.S. bestowed a sort of title on China as our, quote, most favored nation when it came to trade. Because of this, we couldn't actually limit immigration from China, nor could we restrict the rights of Chinese people while they were on American soil. That was part of the agreement. This is partly why America ended up paying the Chinese government a quarter of a million dollars following the events at Chinese Massacre Cove. As part of this treaty, we literally owed them money as reparations for the numerous racially motivated atrocities against Chinese people that had been taking place all over the country. A few years earlier, in 1879, 
advocates of immigration restriction has succeeded in introducing and passing legislation in Congress to limit the number of Chinese allowed to arrive in the U.S. to 15 per ship or vessel. This bill was vetoed by President Hayes because the bill was clearly in violation of the Burlingham-Seward Treaty, but he immediately started work on instead a modification to the treaty that would allow the U.S. to start restricting Chinese immigration. Basically, because the treaty wouldn't allow the U.S. to ban Chinese people outright from entry to the U.S., in 1882, the U.S. government instead, quote, suspended the immigration of Chinese laborers for a period of 10 years. In 1888, Congress took exclusion even further and passed the Scott Act, which made re-entry to the United States after a visit to China impossible, even for long-term residents. The Chinese government was understandably furious and took this as a direct insult, which it very clearly was. They were, however, unable to do much to stop the bill's passage. And in 1892, Congress voted to renew the exclusion for another 10 years, then expanded the prohibition even further to cover Hawaii and the Philippines, and in 1902, ultimately extended the Exclusion Act indefinitely. The Chinese Exclusion Act was the very first piece of legislation ever enacted in the United States to try and limit immigration. But while it did succeed in expelling thousands of Chinese people, some who had lived most of their lives in the U.S. by this point, there were many others who chose to remain. And it is on a few of those brave individuals and their invaluable contributions to Idaho history that I want to focus on now. Dr. C.K. Afong immigrated to the U.S. in the 1870s. The abbreviation CK actually comes from a mistake made by U.S. officials, so going forward, I'm just going to refer to him as Dr. Afong. The Afong family had an established practice in traditional Chinese medicine in San Francisco, California. Initially, Dr. Afong, who had graduated from a Chinese medical school in 1867, worked with his father in San Francisco before setting out for Rocky Bar, Idaho, in 1875. Once in Rocky Bar, he set up his own clinic and treated miners and other residents of the growing settlement. Dr. Afong was one of the many Chinese townspeople who were literally pivotal to the survival of mining communities like Rocky Bar. In the early 1890s, an influenza pandemic was sweeping the nation and actually killed a little under 1% of the world population at the time. Treating victims of the pandemic was beyond the skill of even the most experienced physicians, but one apothecary in a little mining town in Idaho was so successful at treating the illness that he actually became national news for it. Dr. Afong's clinic became widely popular and likely would have remained so had a fire not demolished most of the downtown's businesses in the 1890s, including Dr. Afong's pharmacy. Dr. Afong then relocated to Boise and became so successful that he quickly outgrew his first downtown space and actually expanded, setting up a second clinic on the corner of what was then 7th and Idaho, now the corner of Capitol and Idaho. His storefront sat where the coffee shop Goldie's Corner is located today. He treated customers from all over the continent, and he and his family became somewhat of a local celebrity family in Boise. When his wife, Sin Afong, passed in 1902, her funeral was attended by literally hundreds of Boise's residents. 
I wasn't able to find a record of a gravestone for her in Idaho or California where she had previously lived, and it's entirely possible that her remains were returned to her family in China when she passed as Dr. Afong's eventually were upon his death. Dr. Afong operated his clinic and supply store for over 30 years in Boise, eventually passing the business on to his children. But while he was well-known and respected within Boise on a community level, Chinese people were still very much considered second-class citizens. Because of anti-Chinese regulations passed by U.S. Congress and then the local Idaho legislature, each year, Dr. Afong was required to purchase a special license to continue practicing medicine. This was especially difficult because Idaho's licensure laws were constantly changing as the state grew and developed, and also because constantly changing the laws was an easy way to trip up immigrant business owners who sometimes lacked the language experience to catch minute changes that could land them in jail. In 1899, Dr. Afong's medical license was denied. Dr. Afong fought this denial, and the case ultimately made it all the way to the Idaho Supreme Court. His license was regained in 1901, and in 1903, Dr. Afong was granted a medical degree. He may be the only Chinese physician in U.S. history to have been so vindicated as a doctor by such a distinction, which is incredibly impressive. At his passing in 1927, Dr. Afong's body was transported back to his home in China and buried there. His eldest son, Herbert, would continue the family's medical practice, which he then would pass to his son, Gerald, and the Afong apothecary shop remained a fixture of Boise's Chinatown until the 1960s when the shop was closed and then demolished as part of an urban renewal movement. Urban renewal is a program of land development that is touted as a tool to address urban decay in cities, but this typically just entails the clearing out of areas considered by predominantly white city planners to be unsightly in an effort to create opportunities for higher class housing, businesses, and other developments. While in theory urban renewal could be beneficial to the often non-white inhabitants of the areas that are targeted in that a genuine investment in their neighborhood could actually be helpful, what generally ends up happening is just straight-up gentrification. And as we discussed in the first episode of this series on Root Shock, the demolition of gathering places, monuments, outdoor spaces, homes, and the uprooting of people in the interest of capitalism continue to have violent and long-lasting effects on the livelihood and well-being of communities. Attacks on Chinatown by city officials far predated the actual urban renewal movement of the 60s and 70s, though. Around 1901, the city of Boise condemned the Chinatown buildings along Idaho Street for being fire-prone. Entire towns and cities were regularly destroyed by fire all through the 1800s and into the early 20th century. Towns as small as the earlier mentioned Rocky Bar in Idaho and cities as populated and as well-known as Chicago were completely devastated merely because the most commonly used and easily attainable construction material had been wood. Just a few years earlier in Lewiston, Idaho, 13 homes and businesses within their own Chinatown area burned to the ground. And not only that, but firefighters were instructed at the time not to interfere with the burning until it affected white-owned structures and to just let it burn. 
With the introduction of building codes advertised as being in the public's best interest, for example, the phasing out of wood in favor of much more fire-resistant stone structures, what we actually see are whole swaths of business owners, usually less affluent business owners, and in this particular case, Chinese business owners, being wiped out. Upgrading to the newest standards of construction was very expensive and ultimately unaffordable for many immigrant families. So you can see how housing and construction policy, pre any sort of fair housing protection, have been used against immigrant populations over and over again, simply because they could not afford to keep up with what city codes and legislations demanded. The policy, in and of itself, may not be nefarious, but the result of said policy has a very clear and disparate impact on Chinatown and its inhabitants. This is an important aspect of Boise history to keep in mind at this moment in time, especially because the city of Boise is currently in the process of rezoning. And with rezoning measures, we run the risk of not only escalating the legacy of redlining and the racist policies that came before us, but of disproportionately affecting the most historically marginalized people in our community. Unless we really bring the history and full American context of segregation, exclusion, exploitation of people of color to the table in rezoning efforts, and unless we look at city planning with a dedicated fair housing lens, the repetition of discriminatory policies, whether intentional or not, is inevitable. And we owe it to our community and to the legacy of people like the Afong family to do better. Prior to its demolition, one prominent Chinatown building, the Hopsing Tong's most notable resident, became a man by the name of Billy Fong, who lived in an upstairs apartment of the building. Over the course of his 30-year residency, he held every administrative office available at the Tong. Billy also worked at the Golden Walk, a restaurant a few blocks away on 11th Street at the time, a staple of the downtown area for years until its closure in the 2000s. Billy refused to leave his residence until the day before demolition began, drawing regional media attention, hanging a white flag of surrender on the wrecking ball as he left. At the age of 84, Billy became Boise's very last Chinatown resident. Around this same time, culminating in protests all over the nation because of a long history of poor treatment for people of color, the civil rights movement was also in full swing. And in 1968, following the assassination of Martin Luther King Jr., the Fair Housing Act, Title VIII of the Civil Rights Act, was passed. This landmark piece of legislation finally prohibited housing discrimination on the basis of race, color, religion, national origin, and familial status. Now, if we look back at everything we just learned about the treatment of Chinese immigrants in Idaho, it pretty much ticks all of those boxes. I mean, once you know what to look for, you can't stop seeing fair housing violations over and over again throughout the course of American history, which is why we have them. In 2001, the city of Boise funded a historical project by artist Dwayne Carver called Historical Site, Boise's China. The project consists of three red viewer stations that feature images of Boise's Chinatown. The viewers are located around the downtown area. There's one on Grove Plaza, one at Capitol and Front Street, and a third at the corner of Capitol and Grove. Within these viewers, one can take a glimpse into the past and see what once stood on that same ground. Another public artwork called Grove Street Illuminated and Boise Canal, erected in 2003 by Amy Westover, also references the Chinatown history of Boise. 
Also of note, the Chinese Odd Fellows Building, situated on Front Street, next door to the American Cleaning Service Company, which you likely know because of the constantly rotating and humorous marquee sign out front, is one of the last surviving remnants of Chinatown, as well as being listed on the National Register of Historic Places. There are so many stories, so many more pieces of Idaho history and the history of Boise's Chinatown that we could go into. We could discuss Polly Bemis, a Chinese-American pioneer who lived in Idaho in the late 19th and early 20th centuries, and whose story was the subject of the 1991 film Thousand Pieces of Gold. In 2021, August 10th was officially declared Polly Bemis Day in Idaho, in a ceremony on the steps of the Capitol building, where a life-sized statue of Polly Bemis was unveiled in her honor. Because gender and disability were eventually also added to the Fair Housing Act, bringing the total of protected classes to seven, and were we to take a fair housing lens and look at the life of Polly Bemis, we would see a number of fair housing violations against her on the basis of gender as well. We could also go into the history of the Chinese gardens, now called Garden City, the main artery of which, Chindin Boulevard, is actually just an abbreviation of the words Chinese and gardens. And it's an area which continues to face threats of gentrification and the displacement of longtime residents to this day. It is through these lasting remnants, as well as the tireless efforts of Chinese-American groups to keep their heritage alive along with historians, artists, and preservation enthusiasts that the legacy of Chinatown and of Chinese history in Idaho endures. But the erasure is constant and ongoing, and anti-Asian discrimination and violence against Asian people, particularly against Asian women, is on the rise all over the country. It is absolutely imperative that we not only learn, but reference and condemn the wrongs of our history as we go about writing them lest we be doomed instead to repeat them. Sources for parts one and two of this episode include reporting by Don Day for KTVB, the old Boise Chinatown tour at boisechinatown.blogspot.com, the Magic Valley Times News, the Boise State University Center for Idaho History and Politics, intermountainhistories.org, Northwest Asian Weekly, the Oregonian, the History Channel, and the United States Office of the Historian. If you or someone you know has experienced housing discrimination because of their national origin, their race, gender, or any of the seven protected classes, please reach out to the Intermountain Fair Housing Council today. You can find our contact information in the description of this episode. The Intermountain Fair Housing Council is a nonprofit organization whose mission is to ensure open and inclusive housing for all persons, without regard to race, color, sex, religion, national origin, familial status, sexual orientation, gender identity, source of income, or disability. The work that provided the basis for this presentation was supported by funding under a grant with the U.S. Department of Housing and Urban Development. The creator is solely responsible for the accuracy of the statements and interpretations contained in this presentation. Such interpretations do not necessarily reflect the views of the federal government.